I think we we believe in this as a culture in this fantasy that anything bad can be made like for the good, right? No matter what we lose, what tragedies happen to us, that we can like through our sheer force of will, like twist them into something better. And A, that feels awful if you're the person who's lost something, but B, it's so dangerous because what incentive do we have to make systems better? This is Here After, and I'm your host, Megan Devine, author of the best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. This week on Here After, author Emmy Neatfeld joins me to talk about trauma, resilience, and that weird transformation storyline thing we force on survivors of any kind of hardship. Settle in, friends. All of that coming up right after this first break. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Before we get started, one quick note. While we cover a lot of emotional, relational territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. Hey, friends. I first learned about Emmy Neatfeld from a review of her book, Acceptance, in The New York Times. That review is called, quote, The Problem with Survival Memoirs. So, of course, it had me hooked from the very start. I am such a big grouch when it comes to those worn-out tropes about redemption and how people overcome horrible things just so they can become the amazing person you see before you today. Ugh. 
hate them. Anyway, Emmy's book Acceptance has been described as a luminous, generation-defining memoir of foster care and homelessness, Harvard and big tech, examining society's fixation with resilience, which is a pretty awesome review. Emmy really dives into the whole weird thing we do with people who overcome difficult things in their lives, how we hold up these like rare rock star examples of success as proof that you really can transcend anything if you try hard enough, which also just implies that anybody who hasn't made their way to Ivy League school, it's jobs at Google and all of that stuff, they just aren't trying hard enough. If you haven't risen above your circumstances, that's on you friends. This episode is about the underside of that resilience narrative, and I cannot wait to share this conversation with you. Quick content note, this episode includes discussions of eating disorders, self-harm, and hospitalization. Emmy, I am so glad to have you here with me today. Thank you so much, Megan. I'm so happy to be here. So I found you the same way that I find a lot of people these days is on Twitter. Somebody posted your New York Times book review for the book and I read the essay and I think I think that was in my message to you that like I got halfway through the book review. I was like, I need to talk to her. I need to talk to her right now. So <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so I'm just, you know, people should be used to me fangirling by now. But tell us a little bit about your book. I talked about your history some just, you know, as we know, we like to give folks a break from telling that particular story. But tell us a little bit about the book and then we'll dive into a conversation. My book is called Acceptance, and it's a memoir with foster care and homelessness and Harvard and Google. And it's also, I hope, a fast-paced read that reads like a novel. Some people have said like a thriller of, you know, my quest to get into an Ivy League school, but really to get out of these really difficult situations and be heard. And I hope that that raw need and drive shines through as I went through it. And then as I tried to go back and uncover the truth about what really happened. Mm, that excavation, right? Like you live mm -hmm. it. Oh, I'm going to misquote somebody here because I won't remember who it is. But somebody said writers live everything twice. Mm. The first time when you live it and the second time on the page, right? That mm. excavation is a really huge thing. Yeah. And in the book, structurally, I really wanted to take readers on the same journey I was on where I don't share some of like the information that I didn't know then. So kind of living with me moment to moment. But then in the epilogue, as a young adult, I went back and I read tens of thousands of pages of medical records, interviewed everyone, got every piece of info that I could. And I share what I found and how it really radically changed the way that I thought about my life. One of the things that I loved in the book review is that the, the title of the review is The Problem with Survival Memoirs. So on that one hand, the book is exactly as you described, right? Like surviving foster care and abuse and the medical mental health system and that striving perfectionist culture. What I super love about you and your work is that you... <laughs> You write a survival memoir at the same time that you're completely skewering the whole idea of survival. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And I think that the headline was actually the problem with survivor memoirs. Oh, yeah. Which was interesting, too, because, you know, a lot of people find comfort in that term. And for me, that's not something that I really 
super identify with. And I don't think I ever used it in the book unironically. So it was interesting that it wound up as a headline in it. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole genre of itself, right? The survivor mm. story, right? Yeah. That whole trauma porn of resilience. Yeah. And that's that's something that you that you really kind of skewer in all of this. And we don't see that in a lot of survivor writing, whether it's in book form or made for TV movies, right? I saw another article that said, you know, Emmy Neatfeld's life is a made for TV movie, except that it's not. It's so interesting, the stigma that we have against the word victim or against mm -hmm. the idea of being a victim. And, you know, today it's all trauma survivorship. And, you know, certain things happen that make us into victims. And for me, it's been really important to own that because when I was going through these these systems and trying to, you know, prove to people that I was worthy of having a more secure, stable life, there was this huge expectation that I had to be a quote unquote survivor with all of that entailed and be a good survivor and be, you know, changed only in pretty ways. Mm. Right. Yeah. There's that great scene in your book. And I'm not giving away any spoilers here, but there's that really great scene in, in the book after you've received your college acceptance, but you have that the scholarship meeting. And tell us a little bit about being that perfect victim. Like a lot of high school students, and I think really anyone who's looking to powerful institutions to really help them out in today's world, I felt this tremendous pressure to write a story in which you know, I had these bad things happen to me, but I was made stronger by them. And where I included the ways I was tough and gritty and completely left out the nightmares and the PTSD and the less kind of picturesque details. And so when I was a high school senior, I won a scholarship from this organization called the Horatio Alger Society of Distinguished Americans. And Horatio Alger was the famous author of these 19th century novels like that really exemplified pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. And when I showed up at the conference that all the scholarship winners got to, I learned that that was really their agenda, that they found these kids who had, quote unquote, overcome adversity, and that we were the poster children, not just for resilience, but for like a specific kind of right wing conservative agenda of like, we don't need social services because these kids have proven that literally anyone can do it. Yeah, if you if you come from an abusive home or foster care or you have a, a history of self-harm, right? Like we don't actually need to help you because look at these children that we have assembled and look at how perfect they are and how high achieving and how well-spoken and articulate. We don't need to help them. You just need to help yourself. Exactly. And I used to feel like this discomfort that I had with that idea was really personal to me. But then as I started to, to talk to more people who had endured really difficult things, and then they found themselves faced with this these expectations, like you should be grateful for the good things that have come out of it. You should be like always smiling that, you know, you're still here, you're alive, like you're doing it. And I found that that was really a pretty universal sensation that responding to grief and loss with that type of narrative, it doesn't feel good. No, no, I, it's weird because we, we call those feel good stories, 
right? Mm-hmm. Here are all of these terrible things that happened, and here's how this person rose above and started a foundation, and they have a really great life. Like, we call those feel-good stories, but what I just heard you say is, like, being on the receiving end of that does not feel good. <laughs> Feel wow. good story for whom? I'm confused. <laughs> what an astute point. And I think that that being held up in that way, you know, I I know I'm very lucky. Like I went to Harvard, I worked at Google. Today I enjoy just a lot of financial stability and privilege. And I'm very I'm very aware of that. And I think there's a way in which our culture says that if you are privileged in like one or more ways, we don't have the complexity of acknowledging like that you might also be hurting in various other ways, right? And that privilege and loss are not exclusive. Mm, Privilege and loss are not exclusive. Yeah, right? That knee-jerk reaction of, you know, I am having a, even just on like a low level, like I'm having a really crappy day. Well, you should be thankful that you have eyes to see the sun. Wait, what? Right. That like we have such low tolerance for any kind of thing that makes us feel (laughs) right. Anything that makes us feel we're like, okay, shut that down, shut that down, shut that down. Mm -hmm. And in my book, I think I call it like that backlog of pain. Right. You can't let somebody else be in pain because you're not getting any support for yours. So like buck up and be grateful, you little brat, because you did go to Harvard, you did get a scholarship. And there's almost this sort of, how dare you still say, ouch, how dare you still say the things that happened to me were not okay. Yeah. And that was a huge part of why I wrote this book Mm. was that I felt like after I got into Harvard, people would ask me when they heard about my life story, like, was it worth it? Like, was it worth it that your parents had mental illnesses and that you were abused and in foster care? And one, this felt like a really insensitive question to ask. And two, I felt like I was supposed to say yes. I was Mm. supposed to say, yes, this was worth it. And I started to see that telling the story in which literally anything, like any amount of suffering is worth it for the few people who basically get this winning lottery ticket and this rocket ship to upward mobility, that story is used all throughout our society to justify inequality. We say, okay, it's okay that millions of children live in poverty because a few make it out. And if you ask those kids, you know, and they answer the way they're supposed to answer, then they'll say it's worth it. And so it was taking like my lived experience and twisting it against people who face similar obstacles. I love this idea of like, that's an interesting question. Tell me why you're asking. Mm. Right? Because it's the that question is, hold up, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure we reinforce the cultural narrative that any hardship can be overcome and that if you fail to transform, it's your fault. Right. Mm. Therefore, we don't have to be responsible. We don't have to look at broken systems. We don't have to look at inequality. And we can also tell ourselves that anything bad happened to me, I would be able to rise above it and be resilient because that's what a strong person, strong in air quotes, does. So when you get asked that question, like, is this worth it or was it worth it or, you know, would you change anything? Taking that step backwards and interrogating the question. Mm. Huh. I'm going to steal that one. Do it. 
it's culture jamming at its finest, right? Because you're you're right. Like we're all in a play, and we know our parts. And I I really feel like the work of people who are given a platform and the opportunity to use their voice is to question the play. Ooh, that's so deep. <laughs> and Isn't I love it? yeah. And I I love the way that you know that you are really are really questioning, right? Questioning what it means to be resilient. And yeah. I think we we believe in this as a culture in this fantasy that anything bad can be made like for the good, right? No matter what we lose, what tragedies happen to us that we can like through our sheer force of will like twist them into something better. And A, that feels awful if you're the person who's lost something, but B, it's so dangerous because what incentive do we have to make systems better if you know any individual can just take something unjust and turn it into a good thing. Yeah, we make it a, you know, we're a country of individualism. So we take the refusal to be resilient as a personal failing instead of mm-hmm. as a result of the built environment and the social structures and the the lack of social structure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see this, you know, we are two educated white women having this conversation about our experience of inequity and forced resilience and and all of those things. And I, I think you write about this as well, but we're super privileged. And, and like this, is, I'm, I'm always going to say stuff like this wrong, but like <laughs> I remember like there was something, there was some sign during the political experience of the last four years. There was a something on Twitter again with a white male holding a protest sign that said, I am a winery owner in Napa, I'm a white, wealthy man. And if I'm out here protesting, you know it's bad. Wow. Right? That's sort yeah. of what I'm going for here. Like, yeah. a- again, with you do this in the book and you do this in your in your your media appearances and your writing, like, I had it easier mm. as a white person mm-hmm. going through Harvard, being able to have a voice and be recognized as that quote unquote perfect victim. Mm-hmm. And we got to turn around and say, what about the 99.9% of people who don't have the opportunity to perform as the perfect victim, who's mm-hmm. by very nature of their bodies and their culture can never be seen as a perfect victim, no matter how hard they try? Yeah, that's such a good point. And I do think it's important for people who are in our position to share our stories of the backlash that we faced to talking about what happens when we try to say like, hey, this this thing sucks for me because it is so much worse for so many other people. And in acceptance, I write about how, you know, when I was a kid and I had some social privileges, right? From being white, my parents were college educated, my mom owned a home, but I was not believed, right? And when I tried to share like, hey, you know, we don't have hot water at home. Like, I can't take a shower. I can't even get into the bathtub. Like, that that just was never going to be listened to. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that's both been, like, infuriating to me and liberating that today, like, from the place I stand socially, people do listen to me and people do believe me, right? And, like, this is why I wanted to go to Harvard and why I wanted to get into a position that I would be trusted. Mm. And so many people, they just don't, that's like still not going to happen for them. Yeah. 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 
I was scrolling down and looking at my notes because this, the, what you just described there, that you know, you're a teenager, life at home is really impossible and not okay and not sustainable, and you keep getting put into the hospital and, and all of these things. And here's you, this young you, saying, wait a second, wait a second. We have a mouse-infested home. We have no hot water. It's dirty. My mother has hoarding issues. And the the line from your book is, um, she was white and well-spoken with a house, a college degree, and full custody of me, right? Why would anyone listen to a teenager against what a white, well-educated, professional person would say? It's like, whose story do we believe? We believe the story that allows us to think that the world is a good and just place. Wow. I hope that when people read the book, that they, if they implicitly trust me as a narrator, because they flip to the back, they see my photo, they see Harvard and Google, and I'm blonde and white, that it really makes readers question who they're believing. Because it's like, I'm the same person I was 15 years ago, but like, to ask yourself really like, would would you have believed me then? Mm. So I primarily write about the mental health system where I was sent to the psych ward. I was given lots of medication, including antipsychotics. But I saw a lot of people who were having similar feelings, doing similar things, but because of their race, like the police were called instead of an ambulance. And many people were in the same residential treatment center as I was, but they were there through the court system. And later on, it was when I was applying to college, I was able to basically leave out the time that I spent locked up in this institution. But if it had come through a court, I would not have had that same freedom. Mm -hmm. And so basically I was allowed to have my mental health crisis in peace, which a lot of people just did not have. That's a really interesting aspect of this. Even in that position where you're trying to get a scholarship to cover attending Harvard, all of these things, you know, that from the trauma, porn, resilience end of things like, wow, this is so amazing. You got to decide which parts of your story got shared. Right. You knew the role that you needed to play and you were able to play it. It's mm-hmm. really interesting to think about who doesn't have access to what parts of my story do I put into this play that I'm going mm-hmm. to perform so that I can get the services that I actually just as a human being deserve. That's a really interesting fact piece of information in there. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I talk to other white people who come from dysfunctional homes, that's also a pretty common through line, right? That like my parents struggled with like hoarding and mental health, but we basically struggled without have being surveilled. Mm. And at times it would have been probably better for me if there had been someone like watching, but not necessarily the current system watching. Right. And then lots of like families of color, they have to deal with like, you know, maybe substance abuse or just poverty, and then also the criminal justice system, and then Mm -hmm. also like child protective services. And it just kind of gets piled on in a way that makes it impossible really to dig yourself out. And so I really tried to show the hoops that I jumped through in order to present 
this narrative that people might be more familiar with, right? One that might look like a made for TV movie, what is actually behind it? And what are all the things that go unsaid, including a lot of mistakes that I made? Like I shoplifted at times, I lied to people. You know, I don't wanna be too hard on myself because I was a teenager like trying to get by, but those choices could have turned out very differently for me. And I'm only where I am today because they didn't. The unbelieved teenager is a is a story very near and dear to me. My parents are lovely now, decent money, educated, very well spoken, very articulate. Nobody knew what was going on for me as a teenager and as a kid, and it didn't matter if I said anything because I was, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure you know this term, the identified patient, mm-hmm. right? The identified problem in the family is not usually the problem in the family. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I've been talking with Emmy Nietfeld, author of the memoir, Acceptance. Let's get back to it. You know, again, we've been talking about like cultural scripts, like there are ideas we have about young people and about teenagers, and we dismiss the things that they say. Or, you know, if you've got somebody who is um, cutting or self-harming or, you know, shoplifting, the sort of cultural way of looking at that is, oh, they just need to be more resilient. Not always. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want anybody being like, that's not true. But that that we have this sort of default 
the teenager can't be an accurate reporter. We have to look at the grownups to find the accurate report. And it's unusual for us to question that primary reporter. I mean, I think it's, I don't even need to say I think, I know that it's changed in the 30 years since I was a teenager. It has changed in large part because of teachers and nurses and social workers. Shout out to all of those folks in the education system doing amazing work and not being paid for it. But that we, st- I think we still have this idea that no matter what's happened to you, if you have what we call maladaptive coping reactions to the terrible mm-hmm. things that are happening to you, it's your fault for not rising above it. So well said. And in my experience, though, what's considered maladaptive and what's not is really tied with capitalism mm. and with keeping the status quo running even more so than it is about like actual harm to the individual. Mm. Tell me more about that. I was thinking about this a lot recently when I was reflecting on my relationship with exercise. And so after I got into college, I started working out really for the first time in my life. And I ended up walking onto the rowing team as a junior. And it was a really incredible experience being on the team. Like I had great coaches and I really destroyed myself in workouts because I was running from these feelings that I didn't know how to cope with. I couldn't handle. And they were the same feelings that I had dealt with in the past by cutting myself or by eating disorder behaviors. And when I was like running and doing extra workouts, people praised me because they were like, you're so healthy, you're a vision of health. And I ended up getting a back injury that still really affects me to this day. And I'm lucky that I didn't get like a horrible infection or have long lasting physical impacts from eating disorders. But if I look at what impacts me now, that rowing injury plays a bigger part of my day-to-day life than the superficial scars that I have. Yeah, And that's not to say like, you know, no one should work out, but I think there's this knee-jerk reaction to say like, okay, these coping skills are good ones. These are bad ones without looking at like, why are they happening? Why are we assigning them this value of positive or negative? And without asking, like, how can we reduce the harm of this behavior? Yeah. And for me, the way that that ties into capitalism is, you know, we have a a real, well, in the book you use meritocracy, right? But like, we praise getting back to work, right? Mm. Being productive. Our big problem with grief or depression or anxiety or disability, to be blunt about that one, is that you're not productive, right? What do Mm. we say to somebody who's just lost a child or their mom died, we say, keep busy, get back to work. One of the diagnostic criteria for that new prolonged grief disorder thing that we talked about last season is sort of an inability to be productive and go back to work. Now it's it's worded with more nuance than that, but that is what it is. Like you can't go back and do your job because you're too sad. And that's a problem for us. Yeah. yeah. I definitely responded to my childhood with productivity. Mm. For me, work was my oasis and I found peace and comfort in studying for standardized tests, which, you know, is great while it lasts. But then as I got into adulthood, I had to question a little bit how healthy that behavior was as my only coping mechanism. 
And it obviously leads to like financial success. Like we create more stuff that way, but what does it do to us as people? Mm. Watching people around me go through grief. I have seen people close to me have deaths in the family recently. And when people have gone straight back to work, I feel a little disturbed by it, Mm. you know, because I'm worried about them. Like, are you going to have the space to process it? Right. Or are you just shoving it down? Yeah. And there's no right or wrong there. It's it's questioning what do we believe is the correct way to respond Mm. to challenges, difficult, emotional moments in a life? Like what is correct? And as you were talking about with exercise, right? Like we praise and prize a very specific body type. And if you aren't exercising, you're failing, you're being lazy, you're not taking care of your health without really looking at what what about for folks who are using physical activity? One of the things that you said was you know, exercising in that way was an extension of self-harm, right? Mm -hmm. A different expression, not creating scars on the body, but pushing yourself that hard and causing lasting damage. I also like that you said like, exercise is good, don't stop exercising. Like exercise, yes, strong bones, healthy heart, all those things. And really being curious about how do we use the coping skills that we're using? Coping skills are awesome. Coping skills help you cope. Hello, that's what they're for right? Coping skills help you cope with the things that you need to survive. You can use coping skills in joy too. Like everything is so amazing. How am I going to cope with it? Right? Like, ah, this is your little PSA that coping skills are awesome. They are neither maladaptive or perfect. Anyway, but to be curious about what is actually going on and how am I using the tools in my toolbox to go all therapist about it. Like, am I using exercise or work as a way to avoid feeling? Okay, not good, not bad, useful information. Am I using exercise to channel my rage at certain situations? Awesome, right? Again, it's not that activities are right or wrong. It's what are you using them for? And this is motivational interviewing, right? Do you know motivational interviewing? Yeah. I love motivational interviewing. Yeah. It's my favorite. Looking back, I think my teenage years would have been so different if the therapist that I had encountered had been using that technique. Mm. Can you, Um, I know what it is, but can you tell everybody what motivational interviewing is? So motivational interviewing, as I understand it, as a non-therapist is basically asking someone like, what are your goals? What do you want? And then structuring the treatment to help someone reach those goals. We're always like tying back to what the individual is looking for. So instead of being like, okay, this is the agenda that I have that you have to do. You have to comply with my agenda. Instead, it's like, what is your agenda? And following from there. Yeah, motivational interviewing is really, really amazing. I'll link to it in the show notes, everybody, so you can get a little primer on it. But it's it's basically like it's human-centered, right? It comes from the addiction field. There's a whole scale of like, where is the person who's sitting with you? Mm-hmm. What stage of their journey are they in? Sorry, I hate journey language. But like it starts, it starts with you can't get somebody to do your agenda if they haven't joined you in that agenda. And it, mm-hmm. it really is, it's about sovereignty and agency, which are my mm-hmm. favorites. 
What is it that you want? I want to not be hospitalized anymore because it's really irritating. Okay, what are the things that you think will help keep you out of the hospital and how can we help you get there? That is a very different approach to somebody who is you know, self-harming or having disordered eating patterns. That question is very different than you need to hit this weight goal. You need to show this, this, and this because what do we do? We learn, I know what the right answers are. I'm going to give you the right answers, but it doesn't mean anything has changed. I feel like often we believe that young people, especially teenagers, are incapable of knowing what they want, knowing what their goals are, and communicating that. And I don't under really understand why we think that, because if you talk to a teenager, like they know what they want. They know what they want. They know what they need. And that is like the energy that young people have is incredible. And it's something that as I've gotten older, I've been like, wow, I wish I still had that amount of drive and ferocity because if somebody had just sat me down and asked me those questions, I think that would have made all the difference. Yeah. And not even in times of massive distress, right? Like we called it motivational interviewing because that's sort of the the name for this way of approaching specifically clinical work. But this is like how do we respect the people in front of mm -hmm. us? How do we respect ourselves? How do we get curious about what somebody might want or need? This is relationship work, relationship with yourself, with the people around you, with the culture, with the world. What is it that you most want? But like that ability to put your own ideas about the situation, put your own mm -hmm. needs about the situation to the side for just a minute to be curious. What is this person in front of me hold dear? What is important to them? How can we become allies? How can we become a team in moving towards what they want? Going back to what we were talking about with like maladaptive coping skills, yeah. right? And what do we use self-harming behavior for? What do we use overwork for? What do we use any of our sort of addictive behaviors for? We do those things to help us survive what we are trying to survive. Mm. And until we talk about that as like, these are great things that you're doing, or these are these are understandable things that you're doing, can we find other ways mm -hmm. for you to tell your story, get support, manage these feelings, right? Yeah. These are like classic yeah. addictions work things. Yeah. When I decided to stop self-harming myself, my foster parents had been on my case for like, well, I guess they hadn't known about it, right? But I'm glad you brought up the motivational interviewing because I write a lot in acceptance about the power of having a dream. And I had these goals, like first it was to go to college early and then it was to go to like a fancy school and live in New York and speak French. And people thought like, these are bad goals. These are not realistic goals for where you are in the world. Like my social worker had never had someone in 30 years go to college, like not a single person, like let alone Harvard. And so, you know, people thought you're just going to be disappointed. Like they tried to dissuade me. But I think like those were the goals that carried me through. Those were the dreams that I had. And I think often we see loss and we think, okay, in the wake of loss, that's not the right time to be dreaming big. But after you lose something, whether it's someone who's like important to you or the life that you had, that seems like the perfect time to think about what's next. The way that you're describing this, I'm thinking like we're screwed, right? <laughs> if you don't have a dream, 
you're failing that resilience, mm. gratitude, optimism, think beyond your circumstances thing. But if you dream too big, you're too big for your britches, this is unrealistic, right? Like you can't win because everybody's gonna have a different opinion about what you are supposed to be doing. And I love this because like, if you have a dream, who cares what other people mm. think, right? Whatever you want for yourself, as long as it is not causing harm to others, like let's let you lean into that and mm -hmm. stop worrying about whether the dream is too big or too unrealistic. I mean, we're just doing that that whole like not realistic thing, right? Like, whoo, that's that's a whole bunch of internalized disappointment, right? That we're we're trying to project onto somebody else. But I think it gets so murky and muddy and, you know, like do these things and rise above, but don't get that big. Don't, you know, don't dream too big because then your dreams, you know, we think we're protecting you from disappointment. I think the, the, the way out of all of that murkiness is we go back to what do you want for yourself? And can I support you in getting there? Mm -hmm. Right? And if you can't support somebody in reaching for the things that they believe in, then say I can't help you support that, but maybe I can help you find somebody who will. Right? Like, I mean, we're, we're talking pretty ideal world here. We're sort of like, okay, here's this idea we have of the perfect world where everybody is resilient and pulls them up by their bootstraps. But let's maybe reconstruct a different perfect world where we listen better and we ask people about what they want for themselves and help them in the ways that we're able. And if we can't, we say that instead of just trying to like dismantle somebody else's dreams because we don't know how to help them reach them. That's so wise. And on one hand, it sounds like an ideal world, an idealistic world. And on the other hand, I totally see it happening. And I think there's so many educators and health professionals who are out there who are like really listening to kids and to people going through stuff and asking them, okay, like what, what do you need? And I know like I had those people at various times and those people really changed my life. And some of the people who helped me the most were really not perfect people mm. and were only able to help me in a limited way. And I think that's okay. Like we have this other narrative of the hero who comes in and fixes everything and makes it better. And like my story doesn't have that, that one person. It has a lot of people doing what they can. And some of the most heroic people are not able to be there all the time are not able to give me everything that I needed. But that's okay, too. I mean, it's the anti-survivor memoir and also the anti-hero story, right? Mm -hmm. There is no one savior. And there's also, I mean, we, we, touched, we touched on this earlier, so we don't need to dive into it again, but that idea of I'm going to be the one to save this poor disadvantaged youth, right? So that you know, we can have that feather in our cap. And, and when you're in, when you're feeling that, when you're acting from that, everything's going to come out wonky, right? Everything's going to come out wonky if you're doing it to boost your own portfolio of saved people. Mm, that's yeah. so true. That's so true. You know, the close of every episode here is is talking about hope and what are you hopeful for? And, and it's it's amazing to me that even without me saying it, I feel like the the cadence of conversations always comes around to hope and hopefulness and dreams, which I just love because when we get stuck in all of this really like complex systems and webs of things, it can start to just feel incredibly 
heavy. And it's not that hope makes everything better, but it gives us something to live into, right? So knowing what you know and what you've lived and what you've experienced and sort of turned on that black light for yourself about the systems that are involved in everything you've lived, like what does hope look like for you right now? I think that there are so many good things going on right now. And I am very hopeful by Gen Z about the ways that they are taking care of themselves and that a lot of young people are refusing to play the roles that adults would ask them to play. And I think a lot of the awareness of mental health and maybe even quiet quitting and those phenomena are really like radical acts of resistance Mm -hmm. to say like, we are not gonna participate in this system that is making people and the planet really, really sick. And it's like so many people are doing it, it feels like, that it's impossible like not to listen. Yeah. And there's a lot of hopefulness in the chaos of kicking over systems that no longer serve us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really amazing to see to see really young people do it. They should not be responsible for fixing the problems that older generations created. And at the same time, it's like, of course, it would be the teenagers who have new solutions. Yeah. I mean, I feel like every every generation kicks something over from the prior generation, right? So my generation was, you know, talking about sexual violence and domestic violence. And those weren't things that were talked about in my parents' generation. And then the next generation was talking about um, nuclear proliferation and animal rights. And, you know, we each successive generation sort of continues that shedding of systems that don't serve us, right? And turns the light on things. And we kind of need successive generations to do that, right? Like there's this, there's, it's not that everything was bad over here, but like, I just, I see it all as such emotional relational growth The more we learn about being human, the more we kick over the systems that don't serve humans, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm going to join, I'm going to join you in that hope for the young folks and the kicking over of things that no longer serve us. I'm so glad you've been here today. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking to you. So I'm going to link to your website and the name of your book. And I will also link to sort of basic wiki page on motivational interviewing so people know what we're talking about but where else should people find you what do you want them to know i'm on instagram at emmy neatfeld my first name last name and also on twitter at the same handle all right everybody we will be right back with your questions to carry with you and my sort of synthesis of my own thoughts of what i'm carrying with me from today's episode so don't don't miss all that be right back This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. 
To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. You know, one of my favorite things about today's conversation was the complexity and nuance involved in survival. I mean, I think about this stuff all the time, but actually getting into a conversation about whether we believe the teenager who is trying to get help or we believe the educated white adult who says that everything is fine and everything the teenager says is just garbage, I feel like my interior teenage self got some validation in this conversation with Emmy. I'm really thankful for that. What parts of today's episode stuck with you? And everybody's going to take something different from today's show, but I hope you found something to hold on to. Hope really is a crowdsourced thing. There are lots of ways to open conversations like this on everyday grief and resilience and how we survive, how we really survive, not how drama expects us to. I definitely want to hear from you on all of this. What are you holding on to right now? What kind of conversations do you wish you could have? Let me know. Check out Refugee Grief on Instagram or here after pod on TikTok to see video clips from the show and leave your thoughts in the comments on those posts. And be sure to tag us in your own posts on social media. Use the hashtag HereAfterPod on all the platforms. That's how I will find you. We all love to see where this show takes you. Of course, please remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends about the show. That helps more than you know. If you want to tell me how today's show felt for you or you have a request or a question, give us a call at 323 643 3768 and leave a voicemail. If you missed it, you can find the number in the show notes or visit megandevine.co. If you'd rather send an email, you can do that too, right on the website, megandevine.co. We want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. This show, this world, needs your voice. 
together we can make things better, even when they can't be made right. Want more hereafter? Grief education doesn't just belong to end-of-life issues. Nobody has to have died for you to be experiencing grief. As my dad says, daily life is full of everyday grief that we just don't call grief. Learning how to talk about all that without cliches or platitudes or accidentally rude statements is an important skill for everybody. Find trainings, professional resources, and my best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, at megandevine.co. Hereafter with Megan Devine is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, logistical and social media support from Micah, edited by Houston Tilly, music provided by Wavecrush, background noise today provided by Luna, and LA's city bird, the helicopter. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.